Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. Nine, 12, 10. 28 2 23 This is Deep State Radio coming to you direct from our super secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of Snark in Washington DC and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf. And uh, as we do every week, we want to look at uh, one of the most important stories going on out there in the world. I am joined, as per usual, by one of our close friends and guests, Edward Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing today, Ed? Splendidly. Thank you, David. Excellent. Uh, And we are joined by another friend, Rana Ayub, who is an Indian journalist and the author of Gujarat Files, Anatomy of a Cover-Up. She was previously an editor of Tehelka, an investigative magazine in India. She has reported on religious violence, extrajudicial killings by state and insurgency, and she writes periodically for the Washington Post. How are you doing today, Rana? Very well, David. How are you? Good. Very, very, very glad you could join us. Um, Let's start with the most recent piece you had in the Post, which resonated um, uh, I think on several levels with me, uh, and in fact, I think that'll be a theme of our conversation because I, I often have been reading your reports of what's going on in India with nationalism, Hindu nationalism in India's case, and the weakening of democracy, and it resonates with so much that's happening in the United States and elsewhere in the world. Um, and uh, perhaps it's only appropriate that the world's largest democracy um, uh, be tied to these trends. Uh, it is sad 
that is one of the countries leading them. Your column talked about uh, the National Day in India and and how um, the way it is being celebrated is was indicative of the changes that are taking place led uh, uh, by Prime Minister Modi. Perhaps you could recap it a bit. Well, thank you, David. Um, well, this was not like any ordinary Republic Day. In Republic Day in India is a commemoration of the Constitution of India, right? And um, this Republic Day was also, in a way, an attack on the Indian Constitution because in the last one week, the Indian Prime Minister was the Prime Minister of 1.4 billion people, um, inaugurated uh, a grand Ram temple, which on the site of a historic mosque that was demolished in on December 6, 1992. And post the demolition of the mosque, uh, there were nationwide communal riots in which more than a thousand people were killed. And it was very interesting to see that over the years, what has always been described as a criminal act by the country, the Supreme Court of India calling it an egregious act by nationalists, Hindu nationalists, being celebrated on such a large scale by Prime Minister Modi playing the host in a sort of a political spectacle. It was less religious, more of a political spectacle before the general elections this year, which is probably around three to four months from now. And uh, Mr. Modi was uh, the Hindu host who was welcoming um, uh, you know, Hindu nationalists from across the country, including business leaders, the film industry, Bollywood, and uh, yeah, this was the start of the Hindu, in a way, culmination of the Hindu nationalist project. You know, back in the day, in the 80s, when Prime Minister Modi was back then a Hindu nationalistic cadre, he would galvanize crowds to start this, to make this Ram temple. In 2002, when the same Hindu nationalists were returning from the Ayodhya temple uh, back to Gujarat, they were burnt alive in a train. And Mr. Modi made it a communal issue. And then the Gujarat carnage, the infamous Gujarat carnage took place. And that incident, in a way, made him the Hindu, the leader of Hindu pride. 2002 really solidified his image as the Hindu leader. And in 2024, that journey continues in which the promise that he made to the people of the country that I will give you, I will restore Hindu pride was done. And... Soon after, there were communal incidents in which leaders were seen provoking crowds, Hindu nationalists dancing with swords outside mosques. Um, so much so that this Republic Day, when people normally have national, uh, the tricolor outside their houses, this Republic Day was only the saffron flag everywhere. I mean, there was not, I tried to look, I tried to look for the tricolor and it was very, very rare. And it's very rare for the Republic Day of India. And like I wrote in the column, a friend of mine was an architecture student. She decided to put a national flag, the national tricolor outside her house. And the people in her society were upset saying, if you are so, if you are, do not like what's happening in India, move to Pakistan. And that is a sentiment that played in the country. Uh, this evening, another court has given permission for prayers to happen in another mosque called the Gyanwapi Mosque. And as we talk, Hindu nationalists are making preparations to enter the mosque to perform rituals early morning. 
The court had given a time for seven days, but Hindu nationalists are, as we talk, in the mosque already. So this is preparing the ground for a Hindu India three months before the elections. Uh, it's really a striking story. You do talk a little bit about, you know, this is a culmination of the work of Hindu nationalists, but of course, um, the work of Hindu nationalists uh, has ancient roots, long roots back. And uh, in fact, it was a Hindu nationalist, uh, as you note in the article, that uh, assassinated Gandhi. Um, uh, so this has been a thread that has run through the entire history of India as a republic. Um, and the only other thing I would add before turning to Ed is it, one of the things that struck me while reading the article uh, was your reference to Modi 30 years ago, and that you could write almost the exact same story about Benjamin Netanyahu. You know, Benjamin Netanyahu 30 years ago uh, opposed a Palestinian state uh, and uh, was one of the people who led demonstrations against Yitzhak Rabin, actually calling the demonstrations, called for the assassination of Rabin because they were fearful that what he was doing might lead to two states. And so you see, you know, these people uh, in places as diverse as Israel and India, but also, of course, the United States, uh, that the, uh, uh, the uh, old saying, you know, when people tell you who they are, believe them, uh, holds true, right? You know, and, and, and Modi has not changed his stripes at all. Ed? Yeah, well, uh, wonderful to have you on, Rana. Um, and uh, that was a very good summary, I think, of the consecration of the Ram Mandir by by the Prime Minister of um, allegedly secular country. Um, this being actually really quite a big moment in terms of the Hinduization uh, of India, the destruction of secularism. And what David mentioned about the assassin of Rabin, guy from uh, Hebron, um, he celebrated on the on the far right in Israel, just like Nataram Godse, the assassin of Gandhi, is now. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong. The, there are statues, you know, being put up to him. He's now being brought into the textbooks, as Nehru is being purged from the textbooks. So this is a really long term, as David said, serious kind of Leninist grassroots sort of operation to remake society. I guess my my question is. Hubris is usually the undoing um, of movements like this rather than strong opposition. Indian opposition is very, very divided and weak. Um, hubris overreach is usually what, what, what causes setbacks. Do you, where do you see that happening? Is, is it at all possible that in the May election, which is, of course, the, will be, the Indian general election will be, by definition, the biggest democratic exercise in human history, as it is each time. Is there any possibility that given how hard it is to do polling in India, that we might be underestimating a potential sort of check on Modi, particularly from the South? I see India is a very diverse country. And as we are talking, the Indian opposition leader Rahul Gandhi is on his second leg of this justice rally all over India, right? And particularly in South India. But having said that, I think 2024, and as much as I'm an optimist, I think is a foregone conclusion, right? I mean, 
from what you see on the ground i would i would assume i would believe that modi would win with an increased majority and there are multiple aspects to it one being the complete control of the mainstream media in india you know on the day of the ram temple inauguration you had news anchors dressed as lord ram saying ram rajya is here right the, the era of ram is here in any other country you would see a semblance of the mainstream media you would see a judiciary protecting the constitution and the democracy you would see the state the state which is bound the state would mean the state apparatus the ones which are responsible for law and order bound by the constitution we are right now looking at the dismantling of the indian constitution uh, which has no opposition on the on the republic day the indian government website posted the constitution of india without the word secular and socialist and that's been their 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 grouse with what indian national congresses that the word secular was inserted to to appease the minorities like america modi has been incredibly successful with making the majority in the country feel like victims so for the first time there is an atmosphere that you know ram is back you know you, you want to ask people where did ram go right but ram is back hindu pride is back there is there it's this not that there isn't a push back to it but when you're using central agencies like the enforcement directorate like the income tax just this evening a chief minister a provincial minister of a congress led state was arrested by the enforcement directorate so the the bjp also has it, the machineries and the money power you have exhausted all the resources from the opposition so along with the media along with the central agencies you have you have co-opted everything and at this point of time plus the way you have changed the public image you know and and misinformation we had a report the day before that india tops the list of the countries that consume fake news right we have social media platforms that have become an extension of the modi government with these factors i think some of us are even questioning when will there be elections in 2029 because modi is changing the structure of the way the democracy has functioned and the way the constitution has looked like and there is there is no opposition from people on the ground there is a, there is an atmosphere of fear and then when you make the 220 million muslims of the country as enemies the invaders when your history textbooks are being changed i think there's very little hope that i can see it as much as i want to see um i think there's very little hope that there would be uh some opposition to this hubris and this hubris would probably be um be the downfall of of somebody who is very dictatorial in his politics that I mean he's getting older right and um what is he he's now early 70s yes Um, but there has to be there has to be a natural limit and there is no because he's megalomaniac there is no natural uh, successor there i mean there are no there are no limits to how many terms can he contest for elections he can he can go on contesting you know no buddy in the united states can hear what you just said and not think oh my god this sounds like the united states you know that it sounds like there is an assault on democracy um and uh we often uh you know say this may be the last election that we have here because of the the way trump uh is behaving um uh 
I noticed also, just to bring up Israel again, that there was a move afoot to remove somebody from Israel's parliament today because he supported the ICJ investigation into what's going into Gaza. Um, uh, and uh, I, I wonder if we can just sort of pull the focus back a little bit because you are a worldly person and you're looking at the entire world. How do you look at what's going on in India and see how it resonates elsewhere in the world and draw conclusions? Do you draw conclusions? Is it just a coincidence? Is it something to do with the nature of changing social media trends? Is it, you know, and the, the, their, their, the, or fake news or the, the fact that, you know, populism is caught on in a wave or democracy is losing ground. What, how do you see all these pieces connecting? You know, David, I wrote a piece on uh, the support for Israel in India. You know, this is probably something I wrote last month about how the love for Bibi Netanyahu, you know, how Indian nationalists, Hindu nationalists find great source of inspiration from Netanyahu. They believe, I mean, they do not, I think for them, anybody who's not a Jew or an Arab is a Muslim. So for them, Netanyahu is probably the only leader in the world who has shown Muslims their place, uh, who has shown uh, this uh, Muslim supremacy that they have the, in, in their head that they believe. Um, they believe Bibi Netanyahu is probably uh, the only leader. And Modi has, in a way, strangely cult cultivated this Bonhomie brotherhood with the likes of Netanyahu and Putin. They all cut from the same cloth. And if you if you look at the pattern of democracies and the fundamentals which have altered what we are witnessing, they're all too similar. They're all too similar. The consumption of what, what kind of news they are consuming, the social media trends, fake news. Um, in India, yes, he's a populist leader, but I would call Modi more of a demagogue, um, uh, more of a majoritarian leader who has who has literally, I think he's a lot more sharper than a Trump in that, in that sense. He has, his, his, his focus has been very, very clear for the last 35, 40 years. You know, when 9-11 happened, when the 9-11 terror attacks happened, I was watching a news debate back in the day when Modi would go to the media and would speak to the media. Of course, in the last um, 10 years, he has not given a single press conference, nor addressed the media. But back in the day when he was a cadre or a secretary of the party, he would go for election debates and news debates. And when 9-11 happened, he went on a television debate, cherry picking quotes from Quran and to, to go on to say that while all Muslims might not be terrorists, but most terrorists are Muslims and the hegemony of Islam over the world. So he, in a way, he is very similar to a lot of these leaders who are using the phobias that exist. Uh, the insecurities of people that, you know, what with Netanyahu is doing or other leaders are doing. He's feeding on the insecurities of the people. And social media, as we know, has become this, and AI, of course, has become this machine where all your phobias are being amplified and more so in India, where I wake up to the news and uh, and wake up to social media trends. And I, you know, people like us, critics like us have been built as this anti-Hindu or Hindu-phobic people. In, even in U.S. universities, there is this new trend of Hindu phobia to counter Islamophobia. You know, there are lobbies on the model of the Zionist lobbies in America. The Hindu lobbies have started working in America. 
to garner support for this Hindu nationalist movement. So it's all too similar, and um, that's what we are witnessing. That's what I think um, white supremacy and Hindu supremacies, the worlds come together, and it's, it's it is very similar. That's that's a sense that I get. Yeah, it is very similar, and you know it. As you're talking, you know, it's hard not to think of the fact that Trump offers anti-Muslim rhetoric as a core of his message, Uh, that whereas Netanyahu may not present it that way, that's core of his message, that the anti-immigration movement in Europe is typically oriented towards immigrants from uh, North Africa and from the Middle East, towards Muslim immigrants, and that the language of Orban or Marie Le Pen or uh, the various nationalist groups in Italy or the UK or elsewhere, even in Scandinavia, um, that's a that's a trend. It's a it, it ties to Putin. Um, it ties to China and the Uyghurs, and uh, and 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 it is really a global movement that is not just for nationalism, not just to preserve what they are arguing is some form of local identity, but it targets the same group of people or largely targets the same group of people. Um, and and it, I, I, frankly, I find it, you know, seeing the connections frank, has a visceral effect on me. I find it nauseating. Um, yeah, and of course, I mean, picking up on what you were saying, David, um, George Soros is very much demonized um, in the Indian political context. So that's sort of imported the tropes. It's not just the sort of identified enemies within, but the tropes used to sort of scare people are borrowed and shared and a lot of the tactics. And so they're birds of a feather, I think, no doubt. Back in the days when Narendra Modi used to give interviews. I was based in India when he was chief minister of Gujarat. I interviewed him several times after those uh, horrible massacres. Um, and then as, as Gujarat became the sort of star pupil of the Saffron movement um, and watched his rise. And as you say, Rana, he's basically cut off the microphone to the media um, in the last several years, just doesn't give any access, doesn't permit any questioning. Um, it's my question to you is, um, we had in 2020, the Howdy, and 2019, the Howdy Modi rallies, you know, Trump and Modi identifying common interests and the non, and the, the, the Indian American community, um, you know, backing the more Hindu nationalist portions of it, backing Trump quite heavily. It clearly didn't work in 2020. Um, do you see signs of um, that in 2024? India, of course, has its own election to get over, but then there is the November election. And we can have no doubt, right, that Modi would like to see Trump come back. Absolutely. I think Modi has always called Trump his dear friend, just like he calls Bibi his dear brother and friend. Uh, he would like to see because you know, over the last, I mean, today there is a report, I don't know how much can we, I mean, if it's not verified yet, that the U.S. has decided to stall the, the drone deal uh, between India and the U.S. Uh, till the time India completes the investigation into the Sikh 
separatist murder in in New York. So, um, and if you see uh, the religious freedom, the Committee for Religious Freedom over the last three four four years has been publishing very very scathing reports on the Modi government, also pointing out local incidents. So while the the Biden Modi the optics would look like these are two friends, two countries coming together. Biden Biden is giving him the state visit. There are also undercurrents of Biden not completely in agreement with what he's witnessing in India. I mean, of course, you had Tony Blinken talking at Davos about, you know, India's making great strides in progress. Of course, it needs to counter China. But I think Modi would prefer Trump over Biden to get over these uh, small hiccups that he believes, uh, you know, especially vis-a-vis his majoritarian politics that he is witnessing. Uh, he would prefer a Trump over Biden, and he has made that very obvious. Um, I wouldn't be surprised that when he wins the elections, he would once again go and help his friend uh, Donald Trump. We have a very, very strong Hindu diaspora, Indian diaspora in America, which which has been a diehard Trump supporter. It has been a diehard Trump base. Um, at this point of time, I would not see... Um, I, I mean, I... I, I would believe that Indians there also are, are riding the Modi wave and they would very much like to see a leader like Trump and a leader like Modi come together um, to for this India shining moment and Indians there. I mean, on Jan 22, when the temple was being inaugurated, we had a massive rally at Times Square where you had Indian Hindu Americans celebrating this moment and talking about Hindu nationalism now entering America. For that very purpose, I think uh, Modi would benefit by having Trump as his ally there. And I think he would uh, pull no punches in, 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 in doing and extending all sorts of help there. It's an interesting, interesting point. And it, and it brings up a question I'd like to ask, but I'll do so after our break. Uh, at this point in our podcast, as, uh, as those of you who are regular listeners know, we say thanks to everybody who's listening who is not a member, and we encourage them to become members so they can listen to the rest of the podcast. Uh, the rest of the podcast is, you know, bonus content for members only. Uh, and you can become a member by going to the dsrnetwork.com and uh, clicking on membership, and it's $5 a month, less than the cost of a, of a big Starbucks latte. Um, and uh, it supports this kind of discussion and so much else that we've got on our expanding roster of podcasts that we uh, uh, that we encourage you to do it. For now, though, if you're not a member, we say bye-bye, and if you are a member, we say stand by. 